Hey everyone, you're listening to the 107 podcast where we get together every fortnight and sometimes more often to talk about technology, business and the humans in it. I'm your host Ivan Stegic. My guest today is Michael D. Koppelman, who has been referred to by Nancy Lyons as one of the visionaries in the internet space here in the Twin Cities in that he was one of the people responsible for really starting the conversation around internet technologies before it was all mainstream. Michael has worked with Prince as a producer engineer. He co-founded BBS turned ISP Bitstream Underground, which later turned into IP House, as well as the digital agency Clockwork. He recently assumed majority ownership of Badger Hill Brewing, where he was also head brewer. He's involved in astronomy and is a self-described know-it-all who is always looking to learn more and do more and be a better person in the process. Michael also opines on a podcast, The Low Life Podcast, which is nearing 100 episodes and has been around since 2005, which is about 12 years longer than the 107 podcast. It is a pleasure to have you on the podcast today, Michael. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. It's quite an introduction for you. Yeah, I have a short attention span, so like my career spanned a lot of different things. Okay, I suppose that makes a, that makes sense. <laughs> I'm so glad that uh, Nancy talked about you in our podcast. How did you guys meet? What's the origin story there? We had started Bitstream Underground, which was this pre-internet bulletin board system, which you know, uh, essentially a computer that other people called with their computers over modems, over telephone lines. It started sort of just as a hobby, and there was this appetite for, you know, the pre-internet online experience as well as the emerging internet online experiences. So we found ourselves with, like, actual customers. Like, our first customer was BASF. Really? So we were at, you know, at this big advertising agency talking to BASF and these guys about, you know, how to do online stuff. Um, And we were a bunch of musicians and, you know amateurs i guess you would say so nancy was individually applied for like a, a sales job opening we had and my one of my business partners at the time tom garneau told me about her and said like she has a brain that was like the main his main <laughs> takeaway is like she has a brain and um so i interviewed her and we hit it off and we eventually made her the ceo of bitstream and the ceo of clockwork and you know she's one of my favorite people we've we now go back, you know, to 1996 or seven, I think, is when she got hired on. So a very long career together. That's a long time. And I agree. She certainly has a brain and is the nicest person you've ever met as well. Yep. And she's hilarious. And, um, <laughs> you know, her her sense of humor is one of my favorite things about her. And when we get going, we can just be hilariously vulgar. And it's just it's just fun. We've always prioritized <laughs> having fun, you know. That's important, especially when you're doing and working with so many different kinds of clients and customers. Exactly. Yeah. So you're a musician. She said you went to the Berkeley School of Music and you you were this like musician who worked with Prince. What is that true? You you you're also a brewer. I'm still trying to figure this out. But let's go, <laughs> let's go back to the music part. Tell me about your musical history. Yeah, I was, you know, one of those kids that wanted to be a rock star. I've been playing in bands since, you know, seventh grade. 
And my parents were going to make me go to college because I was like, I could just move to L.A. and like play music. And they're like, no, you're going to college. So I looked around and found Berkeley College of Music, the one in Boston. It's not Berkeley, California. Um, and it's like a professional music school. And they had a recording program where they had recording studios there. And really, at the time, the only place I knew of that you could actually like learn how to work in a recording studio as a college degree. So I went to Berkeley for... Um, for my undergraduate degree and they make you be proficient on instrument, which I wanted to anyway, but I also studied recording as my main thrust. So after college, I need, you know, wanted to work in recording studios. And the second studio I I worked at was Paisley Park. And I started there as a grunt, like bottom of the wrong assistant engineer Mm. and slowly worked my way up to working on the Prince project as an assistant engineer. And as happened around Prince, like people would just disappear one day. And his main engineer at the time just disappeared. He got fired. He said the wrong thing, whatever. And um, me and some of my peers sort of took over the main engineering jobs with Prince. So we were in the studio with Prince, you know, just us and him for years and for trillions of hours because the guy worked 24-7. And eventually I was um, producing, writing some songs, mixing some things, and um, pretty involved with the Paisley Park organization until I said the wrong thing and I just disappeared overnight, (laughs) which is exactly how it happens there. Wow. What Was that in the 90s, in the early 90s? Yeah, I was, my main years with Paisley Park was like 89 to 93, I believe. That was burned bright and faded away. Wow. What albums were you working on at the time? The main ones I worked on was the album Graffiti Bridge, the Diamonds and Pearls, and then what's called oh, the yeah. Symbol album. Oh, yeah. When so, he changed his name. Exactly. And then you know, because of how prolific he is, you know, literally 10 years later, I was would still see my name on like new records that came out because you just work on so much music that... Um, Stuff I've forgotten about will show up on a record, and I'll be like, "Oh, I got a new credit out there." And just out of curiosity, how does that work from a logistics perspective? Because there's, I mean, if you have a credit, that means there's a, a royalty check for you know twenty five cents that you're going to get somewhere at some point, right? Not really. I mean, as an engineer, I was sort of like just work for hire. I just got paid uh, hourly. I see. Okay. I did write a few songs, and in those cases. Um, you know, you sort of do get royalties, but I didn't work on anything that really generated royalties, unfortunately. So it's mainly just, yeah, cred. Yeah, well, and street cred, which is awesome. Absolutely. It's, yeah. it's fun to, you know, if you Google my name and Prince's name, a lot of things come up. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um, and then, so you said the wrong thing, left Paisley Park, and where did you end up after that? Um, this was, like I was saying sort of the pre-internet times the internet was invented but people did not have email addresses they'd never seen the web it was very very early in the internet and um a friend of mine and i would um who later formed bitstream underground with me chuck hermes we were like computer buddies and we would dial each other's computers with modems and we would dial bbs's and like i never had a computer that wasn't networked so my first one i had a modem and i was calling things so we started working on like a bbs together chuck and i while we were both still at Paisley Park. I eventually said the word no to Prince, which is when I got fired, and Chuck still worked there, and Prince was going to launch an online service. Everyone sort of was. Like, you know, you could just feel this pent-up demand for cyber things. Something, yeah. Um, And then Prince, I believe the story goes, Prince saw what we were working on and pretty much fired Chuck on the spot because Prince didn't want people 
doing things that weren't for Prince. So Chuck and I started this BBS Bitstream Underground almost immediately thereafter, and I got um, into the technology internet world sort of right after working with Prince. I kept doing music production. I traveled around the world and recorded bands and um, made records, but that sort of started tapering out as my internet career started taking off. And then there wasn't really, you know, people couldn't get internet. They were hearing about the internet, but no one knew how to really get it. So mm-hmm. Bitstream Underground transitioned to be just offering people an easy way to get on the internet. And that's what really set off us on this, you know, multi-decade adventure with Bitstream and Clockwork. Yeah. And Bitstream got acquired by IP House as well, right? That's kind of the genesis, I think, of IP House, right? Well, IP House was sort of our competitor um, and... I mean, it's sort of a boring story, but we we sold our web development business to Gage Marketing Group, and we sold our internet service provider business to what would become, uh, what I would say would get absorbed into IP House. So um, we were sort of a small part of IP House by the time that all happened, but they still manage our domains. Like our my lowlife at bitstream.net address still works thanks to IP House just wanting to honor our legacy, sort of. That's cool. That's it, very cool. It was cool, and it was really cool to have an opportunity to do a start over with Clockwork versus like a startup, where we really came into Clockwork with having made every mistake you can make at Bitstream Underground and wanting to kind of do it right our way without a bunch of business assholes fucking with us. Yeah, that that's always a problem, isn't it, <laughs> when you're tied to those asses? Well, so you co-founded then Clockwork with, is I think if I remember correctly, Nancy said it was you and Chuck and Nancy and another coupleman. Yeah, my brother Kurt also got, got involved with us at that time, yeah. And he had a lot of technology experience in like an AS400 and something like that. So he brought a different level of experience to the thing where I was like literally learning how to hack routers and stuff when the router showed up. And Kurt had had a bit more of a computer experience that he brought to it and it served us well. And Clockwork has gone on to great things in the Twin Cities and nationally as well. You must be very proud of where it's at. Yeah, it's the proudest accomplishment of my life. I mean, we basically started with like a five-year plan and we're sort of approaching year 20. So um, something is going right. Something is going right. There's a lot of good people trying to do good work over there. And that's, um, I mean well-respected and uh, you know i look at clockwork and i'm i'm proud of of clockwork as well and i i don't think i think the two people i've talked to at clockwork are nancy and you <laughs> yeah and you, you guys know? seem to do similar things as clockwork 107 so um yeah we're fellow co-conspirators in this weird industry yeah certainly weird industry um I want to get to Badger Hill Brewing in just a second, but Nancy also said that you built an observatory in Chaska. What's that about? Is is that true? Yeah, and it you know it, it sort of plays a bigger role in my career than it sort of seems. But um, my girlfriend at the time, who became my wife, gave me a telescope for Christmas one year, just a little, you know, fairly small, and it opened my eyes to astronomy. And I loved it immediately. And I had a grandfather who was a scientist, and he was a person you could ask questions like, why is the sky blue or other things? And he would give you the actual answer. Mm. And I started thinking, like, I want to know more about, like, how the universe works. And I remember sitting at an astronomy talk where a guy was using math to describe stars. And I was like, how can you describe stars with math? It was just absolutely opaque to me. I didn't know what calculus was. And I was Mm. like, what the fuck is calculus? And so (laughs) it, it drove me to actually get a degree in astrophysics from the University of Minnesota. 
where I did research with the professors there, I you know reduced data from the Hubble Space Telescope. I was doing my own observing at my little observatory, doing variable star work. So it was a wonderful um, revolution inside my brain in terms of like understanding science better and certainly understanding astronomy better and just enjoying the hunt for data, like going out there and all night having my telescope point at one star all night and watch its brightness change over that night, whether it's an eclipsing binary or a pulsating star. Mm -hmm. And it was just, you know, really fun. And I figured out calculus and other things, and it's led to sort of the mathematical way that I think now. And data and science and fact, right? Why would you make up stuff if there's such an abundance of data out there that you can make good evidence-based decisions on? Exactly. And, and within reach of, you know, ordinary people, like the right. amateur astronomy community is one of the more active amateur science communities where, you know, our observations are very valued by the professional community because we can do stuff they can't because we have more time to do it and, and we don't have to get budgets to do it and stuff. So, it, you know, I really enjoyed the amateur science community. And the telescope you received as a present. Now, I think most people will probably think of something that's uh, you know, like the telescopes on pirate ships that you can extend and that there are lenses in. But I'm I'm guessing that's not what you received. There was probably some sort of technology involved there. It was a pretty simple, like, Newtonian-style telescope where it reflects off the back mirror and you look into the side of the telescope. Mm -hmm. But otherwise... Um, it had very, I think it had a clock drive, so you could plug it into the wall and it turns at the same rate as the Earth's turning. That was the extent of the technology, but I immediately got into astrophotography where I was putting cameras on it and eventually got much nicer telescopes and was taking, you know, photography, which is really fun because you reveal the hidden, like there's all sorts of stuff going on up there that you can see with a very cheap digital camera as long as you have a a telescope that can kind of move with the Earth. And that led into variable star astronomy, which is when I really, really got the bug. And there was a gamma ray burst, I'm, I'm understanding, that you caught on film? Yeah, I had, you know, my observatory, and I, um, I had joined this through the AAVSO, the American Association of Variable Star Observers. They had this alert network for if things happen that we need timely observations of. And gamma rays... Gamma ray bursts were these mysterious things where we, we would see more energy in a few seconds or minutes than, than sort of made sense. We didn't know why gamma ray bursts were happening, and, and it was very rare that we ever saw them in action. We would catch the gamma rays, but we would never see what, what they call the optical afterglow. So they would send alerts out for these gamma ray bursts, and usually they came at the wrong time or the thing was on below the horizon. And just one late at night, one night I got the alert in and I did the math and it was just rising just a few, maybe 10, 15 degrees off the horizon. And I was able to swing over there, took a bunch of images, couldn't see it, stacked them all up. And then I saw it. It's like, that's the afterglow. And so I published it to the astronomy circulars and stuff. I just Googled it because Nancy had mentioned in her podcast with you, which I listened to, that it was I was the first to do that. And I think I was the second to do it. Okay. Well, I'm glad that we have corroborating evidence here. <laughs> A second. And you did that here in the Twin Cities? Where was that? Yeah, like by Carver, southwest Minneapolis, not far from where Badger Hill Brewing is now. But friends of mine have a little hobby farm there, and they let me put this observatory up. And I, this dome, I just I, could, I would swivel by hand, and um, pretty nice telescope in there where I could type in the coordinates to point to, and it would slew over and, and point at it, and then I could 
to take a whole bunch of images and stack them up. So I had a ton of fun out there just following variable stars and writing little papers about variable stars. And again, sort of sparked my interest in science as like a mindset. Well, what do you mean by stack the images up? Well, basically, rather than just doing like one hour long exposure, you can do 60 one minute exposures and then just mathematically add them together. And it's just a way to drive down the noise and sort of make things have higher signal to noise ratio. So, um, and with variable stars, you kind of want to take shorter exposures because you're looking for short term variations. So, um, you know, I would normally shoot like between 100 and maybe 300 second images, but but for all night, and then kind of either analyze them individually or stack them up to make pretty pictures. And was the light from the city a problem? It was. Um, you can sort of subtract it out for scientific observations. It's a noise source, basically. So mm-hmm. um, getting outside the city was important to me because I was doing astrophotography from my home in Golden Valley. And yeah, the light pollution is a killer. So just going you know, 40 miles out of town and pointing away from town, hopefully, like dropped the noise floor a lot. I could actually see dark skies out there. Are you still doing that? I'm not. I still have my telescopes, and I look at them lustily every once in a while. But um, I had two kids, uh, and it sort of took yep. away from that elective time. And I didn't <laughs> want it to become something I felt like I had to do. So I was like, no, you guys just stay there my telescopes. I'll come back. Don't worry. Mm-hmm. The science stuff like led to, you know, as a brewer, as I got into home brewing, I was instantly involved with the scientific side of brewing, like pH and, you know, how water works and you know, sort of the science behind brewing. Brewing is an art, but it also a science. The the art sucks if you don't get yeah, the science right. You know, right. So just plotting data, gathering data. I have sensors all over the brewery that are like using Internet of Things type technology, IoT, and posting to the cloud. And I've got screens where I can look at pressure levels, water levels, flow levels, um, fermentation diagnostics. So it's a very kind of high tech operation for. The fact that we're a very scrappy, small, you know, craft brewery. So, so let's take a step back here. So, um, you got into brewing as a home brewer, and now you're the majority owner of Badger Hill Brewing. Like that's a and and I and from what I understand, you were the head brewer for some time as well. Um, so, talk me through like how someone who's a home brewer becomes, you know, the owner of a brewery because there's a lot of home brewers in the Twin Cities and across the nation that don't have that story arc. Yeah. And a lot that do, you know, a lot of the craft beer revolution has been by, you know, what I call amateur brewers going pro. And for me, you know, I had the scientific viewpoint of brewing. So, um, after having homebrewed for a while, and I started homebrewing in like in college in like the eighties. So making beer was something that I had done not a lot of, but I'd, for a long time, I'd been interested in making beer because I love beer, you know, and mm-hmm. in the 80s, especially, and even, you know, into the 2000s, you just couldn't find great beer. There was some, but it wasn't fresh and it was really hard just to get great beer. So, you know, I still encourage people today, like if you want really great fresh beer, brew it, you know, it's really fun. It's easy and you make great beer. You could see the craft beer revolution coming, and um, we had a brewery not far from my house, which was Lucid Brewing at the time. So I literally just showed up there and was like, can I help? I didn't ask to be paid. I put labels on bottles. I cleaned bottles. I swept the floor. I did just entry-level stuff and eventually became sort of a pro brewer 
at Lucid Brewing. Mm-hmm. And that's when I met the people who started Badger Hill because they actually brewed out of Lucid Brewing. So mm-hmm. I kind of was involved with Badger Hill right from the beginning, but not as an owner. Because I was going to start a brewery. Every home brewer eventually wants to start a brewery because you know right. it's fun and you're giving people your beer and they love it. They're like, holy shit, dude, you're great at this, which I'm not saying they said that about me, but they say that about home brewers because we make good beer, you know? So um, I definitely wanted to start a craft brewery and eventually hooked up with Badger Hill to do that and sort of joined them as a minority order and the head brewer in 2014 and then sort of became the majority owner the beginning of last year because you know transitions yeah things change right and so then at the beginning of this year it looks like there was a major undertaking to redo the brand and the positioning and this is how we're going forward with the new look of badger hill brewing my original business partners and i are still great friends and i respect and admire them but um once i didn't have to debate things anymore um i could be a little more push things the way I like to do things, which is sort of like ask forgiveness, not permission, really empower people to make changes themselves and not think that they have to ask to do it and mm-hmm. just have organic evolution occur. You know, everything evolves. And I think if leadership sometimes stands in the way of evolution and for me, I just wanted to, so like we did our, some rebranding and it, evolved very naturally where we took this design from a one-off beer we had made and we're like that's like better than our logo and we're like maybe that is our logo so we didn't have a committee meet and go through options we just were like that's our new logo and it was like yeah it is and so we made it our new logo it's been fun just you know tapping into the group intelligence of my excellent staff as we go forward just to keep things changing and keep them interesting which is what i think the hallmark of being remarkable is literally like worthy of remark that's what i tell my staff like let's be worthy of people telling someone about us like that's our mission how has the pandemic affected your brewing it's been up and down um you know, when we got closed, it obviously was a painful thing. All the bars, restaurants closed. That's a mm-hmm. painful thing. Um, luckily, people wanted to drink beer. I mean, it's a perfect time to drink beer in a sense. So <laughs> we were able to sort of hang on with our to-go growler business. And then once the governor let us open up a little bit, people came out in safe droves because, you know, we're all thirsty for social experiences and fresh beer and they also want to support local Mm -hmm. businesses so i felt very grateful that people were you know going out of their way which you have to to get to badger hill you have to go out of your way so that people were coming out of their way to visit us and drink our beer and take home a growl with them it's been gratifying and now we're sort of you know not that much worse off in 2019 really because um 2019 wasn't great either you know so things are not looking terrible for us but it's it changes all the time and where exactly is Badger Hill when it's time for us to visit? You said it'll be a little while to get there, just out of the city. It's in Shakopee, Minnesota. So it's right by Valley Fair, Canterbury Park, the horse track, and Mystic Lakes Casino. Oh, right down there where all the entertainment is. Yeah, right? so there's a lot of good you know options down there if you do come to visit us. There's also another brewery in Shakopee, Shakopee Brew Hall, which are friends of ours. So lots of reasons come to come down. I joke that it's impossibly far away because it seems like that. If you live in uh, down, you know, 
the warehouse district or northeast or something, it's, you know, a 20 minute drive. That's not that bad. That's Come not on, impossibly far. Not, no, absolutely <laughs> not. People make that trip all the time to go to work. Well, they used to anyway before the pandemic, but. Exactly. So it's worth a visit. You know, we've done remarkable things there and I think you kind of have to show up to fully realize it. What's your favorite brew right now? We have one called Turncoat, which is like a juicy pale ale. And that's my go-to beer. I love hoppy beers. I got into brewing for hoppy beers. Our most popular has been Trader IPA. You can find that at a lot of bars, restaurants, and liquor stores. But um, we also have a peanut butter stout, which people love. A peanut butter stout? (laughs) Cool. And um, we're always innovating on the beer side. Like, it's hard to put new beers out in the market in cans like we have like our main three or four beers out in there in cans but at the tap room it's almost like every week where we're re- releasing new beer and and are you guys distributed in the region here in the twin cities or are you a little greater than minnesota we're just in minnesota and really sort of in the triangle between duluth rochester and st cloud and with the bulk of our customers being in the metro area so we're a very local brewery i love it I love it. That's so good. Can I hear a little more about your sensors? I kind of want to hear about the science of that that you have uh, set up. And like, have you had that? When did you start doing that? Well, I find this fascinating. Just cut me off if I go no, on. No, not at long. all. I want to hear about it. <laughs> <laughs> We're right next to this large Emerson plant. And Emerson is this you know public company that makes sensors for oil and gas primarily but for all of industry and they're a giant awesome company and they would stop by and have beer at badger hill and i ended up getting to know some people and was telling them some of my goals from a data standpoint and they just would hand me sensors like they'd be like here check this out and it's like a wireless pressure meter was the first thing they gave me um and like a pressure meter is sort of like what i call the least sexy sensor you can find but i put this pressure sensor on our big water tank that we use for brewing so I could see the level of the tank. But I found I could see a lot more than the level of the tank. I could see what time the brewer got in and started mashing in, how long it took him or her to mash in, when the second brewer got there, when we did the first knockout, the second knockout. Like I could really see our process unfolding in the level of this liquor tank. Liquor is a word for brewing water. You know, inference is super powerful. If you know what's going on behind data, you know, I can tell you a lot of things from this one little sensor. So um, this introduced me to Modbus, which is like this old technology for, for querying sensors and PLCs mm-hmm. for data. And we started, I started putting more sensors around. I plugged into our temperature control panel, and it's all Modbus enabled, just out of the box. I was like, holy shit, if I take an IoT thing that costs $20, hook it up into this Modbus, I get set points, temperature... You know, whether the cooling's on and off on all my tanks instantly. So I can get, you know, tank utilizations. You can look at fermentation characteristics and like all this cool stuff from, you know, just writing some Arduino code basically and some stuff on the cloud side to capture the data. So I joke, and it might be true that I have more data than any craft brewery. I've probably got 100 (laughs) million rows of of all this data from all these sensors and all done on a shoestring budget. You know, Emerson is a great company, but for them to roll out at a brewery, what I did would I'm sure be six figures and up type stuff. And for me, it's, you know, hundreds of dollars of type stuff. Plus all of your 25, 30 years of experience and knowledge as well. So like there's that part too, that, that really helps you out. 
For sure, yeah. And also a lot of stuff I did not know, like Modbus. Modbus is cool. I used to be at Honeywell, and we'd use that to to collect data from all the sensors we had. And I like, yeah, that's a trip down memory lane for me as well. And it was a super forward-thinking protocol. Yeah. I believe it was written in the 70s, but it's two wires, and it does you know addressing so you can address each device separately and you know it's really cool and so it's just very universally implemented almost everything you buy probably does modbus which means a ten dollar arduino thing and you can get that data up on the cloud exactly yeah and so it's, I, it's, I, I just sh- go ahead i was gonna say it's nice that it can interface with something like arduino because arduino is so so simple that like of course it's can interface there exactly two wires you know yeah. Wow, very cool. Well, your um, your description of using science in brewing beer reminded me of a guy I've been watching on YouTube do cooking, and he's um, his name is Kenji Alt Lopez, and he is this MIT graduate who really only ever wanted to cook, uh, but studied science and ended up being an incredible chef and a James Beard Award winning chef, and he has a, a restaurant out in California. And during this pandemic, I've been watching him cook and he talks about science and how how, the, how you really have to understand what's going into your food just to make it do the things you want it to do. And he has this incredibly easy recipe for mayonnaise. And I've always thought that mayonnaise is really hard to make. You know what? It's not. If you just put the right things together and use the right tools... It's great and easy to do as well. No, that sounds awesome. I've always thought with cooking, it's like, why don't I hear people talking about pH more in cooking? Like what your water is like is going to affect the acidity of things a lot. And like you might not get the results that your recipe told you you would get because you're using different source ingredients you know like exactly so i'm i I knew there had to be people like that out there like no let's bring ph meters into the kitchen please yeah he's he's great we'll uh link to him in the show notes and i can always share the link with you later on as well speaking about science and math you had a whole podcast episode on the math behind the COVID pandemic. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that because there were some graphs that I've seen and then some other videos that I've seen that I thought might interest you. So do do you want to give us a kind of a, how about a 10 second summary of that podcast episode that you, you talked about math on? Yeah, it was basically, I think, in in March or something of 2020, where uh, the sh- shutdowns were just happening for the pandemic and you know exponential growth was in the news all the time, still is. But I've always been fascinated by the number E and by, you know, essentially the exponential function. And, you know, like I say in the podcast, viruses are inherently exponential. It doesn't mean it's just going to be a nice, smooth bell curve, but they're fundamentally exponential in terms of how they propagate. So I just wanted to explain to people like how cool the number E was, how it's used in finance, physics, you know, epidemiology, all of these things, and um, try to shed some light on what we mean when we're talking about that. And then also trying to understand COVID because, you know, I think it's a data miner's dream. It's a freaking nightmare, but it's a, you know, a dream to have all this data about this <laughs> yeah. pandemic. I don't think we've ever had good data on a pandemic before, really. So it's no. just a fun time to be like a data hacker. Yeah. And I'm fascinated by the number E as well. The fact that these natural phenomenon all basically do the same thing. And if you think about it, they're phenomenon that don't really know about each other. There's no 
you know, information that's been relayed from the natural decay of a, of an atom over to a virus that is also exploding in the same general pattern. Yeah, he's awesome. There's this great video by Minute Physics. Do you know the YouTube channel Minute Physics? Not until you shared that link. I watched the video you shared, and it was super well done. Yeah, the guy is a. He's just so good at explaining complex uh, physics in a really approachable and understandable way. And he has a ton of videos that you should check out. But the um, the basis for our listeners of this video was how to tell if you're actually winning against a virus. Like, I always wonder, like, how are we going to know when we get on the other side of that bell curve? And it seems like plotting the data of how many cases and deaths we have against time doesn't really give us what we want. We want some other sort of indicator that tells us if we've won or not. And and these guys talk about plotting the number of new cases versus the number of total cases. And then you see this cliff, you see this precipitous drop in the data. It's so hard to talk about charts yeah. <laughs> in audio. I looked at those charts and I thought to myself, oh man, like I haven't seen the cliff yet for the United States. I've seen it in other countries. I'm a little worried. I'm a lot worried. I'm very pessimistic. And I listened to your podcast and I was like, wow, you sound so optimistic in that podcast, given that it was in March. How do you feel about it now? Like looking at the numbers and knowing that there's all this data, what do you feel right now about it all? You know, as that video pointed out, uh, the Minute Physics video, the conflation of testing rates and infection rates is intermingled in the data. So like, it's really hard to tell if what we're seeing I should say how what we're seeing relates to the actual infection rate, which is what most of us are concerned about. And it's almost like a lesson in statistics, like we will never know the actual infection rate. We're trying to estimate it by looking at data, and that data includes you know, total cases, new cases, hospitalizations, deaths, all these things. But we'll never really know the true infection rate, so we're trying to infer it from the data. And you know, exponential growth—you can see when it ends very easily, sort of. Especially if you're looking at the rate of change, you can see it curving over. But that doesn't mean tomorrow is going to behave. And especially when testing rates are conflated in there, all, if you know, Trump's an idiot, but he's right about one thing. Like, if you test more, you're going to find more. And it took a long time for states to get their testing regimes working well. So we absolutely saw more cases because of more testing. But that's certainly not the whole story. Like, we, there's a growth in infection rates as well. So we're seeing double peaks. We, The time of my podcast, we had not seen anything have a double peak ever. And now we're mm -hmm. seeing these double mm -hmm. peaks. And you're trying to unwind. It's like, how much of this is testing? How much is infection? And how do we tell the difference, you know? So I think a year from now... I think we'll we'll really learn a lot about how our thinking was wrong. And my thinking was certainly wrong, you know, in March in terms of, you know, if we're going down, that means the exponential is sort of like over. It's like, well, no, it, there's more than one exponential going on. It's a whole bunch of them stacked together. And even though one virus, if you will, one infectious load is going to behave sort of exponentially, there's a superposition of a whole bunch of those together. And in environments that we have no control or even knowledge of. So I think what we're seeing is just the, the chaos that not understanding yields us. And even today, I think we understand very little about what this virus is doing. 
I think you're right. I think we understand very little and it behooves us to remain vigilant and to wear masks and to social distance for as long as we can. I'm I'm just thinking about the fall and um, going back to school and wondering how my kids are going to deal with that and whether we're even going to have school this fall. Do you, do you, you, you mentioned you had kids are, um, how are you feeling about the fall and upcoming school? I kind of sit in the middle of this and, um, you know, I sort of feel like the cost of closing school, closing businesses, you know, curtailing our economy, having people be out of work, depression, divorce, poverty, like there's a ton of downsides of, of saying like, no, everyone should stay absolutely home, close everything, like there's a ton of cost to that as well and, and in human lives and stuff too of course you know we all we in a sense we more of us need to get the virus safely in a way that doesn't overwhelm the hospitals until we can get a vaccine so i don't think like hiding from it alone is not the only way to do it people are going to die no matter what and i don't think you can look at it and say like well kids will die it's like yes kids will die either way from from how we make these decisions. Like there's no case where kids don't die or where people don't die. So it's a super tough problem to solve. I sort of feel like most of us can get exposed to COVID and not have it hospitalize or kill us. And the more of that that happens is sort of like good. But as soon as you give it to grandma and she dies, it no longer seems very good. So I don't know the right answer. I think we do have to have a balanced approach of like, no, let's not hide from it forever, but let's also be as smart and informed as we can be. So I would send my kids to school, I think. If the governor and everyone else thinks that we can do this safely and and teachers are on board, I think that, you know, we have to roll the dice a little bit. Yeah, it's it's a really difficult decision and everybody has to make what's, you know, the right decision when what's good for their own family. I think if the science shows that we're better off with the kids at home, then we do that. If the science shows we're better off with the kids at school and the governor mandates it and or the governor has good data and there's a there's a good state law, then I think I'm I'm in favor of that too. I would love to see a vaccine though. I mean I and I'm kinda concerned that a vaccine isn't actually the silver bullet that everybody thinks it is. Like it feels like there's as with anything rolling out of a vaccine is going to be fraught with cases that don't work, cases where people are killed by it, cases where it's super effective. And like, I'd love to see a vaccine though. That, I mean, I think we all Absolutely. would. Absolutely. I and mean, that's the, the only way this ends from what we know about the vaccine right now. But, you know, with the weird political environment we're in where, you know, masks have become a polarizing issue, you know, I, vaccine is going to be too. Like there's people that think really dumb things that you can get COVID from 5G or that the gut... <laughs> yeah, what's up with that? Like, it's hard to believe. It seems like, you know, satire. But um, with a vaccine too, people have, you know, obviously anti-vaxxers have been suspicious of vaccines for health and or, you know, conspiracy theory reasons. And that's not going to change. So um, like you said, yeah, how many people have to die from a vaccine before people think it's some plot to kill white people or whatever it is? I have no fucking idea about it. yeah. I it's don't. not going to go easy. It's, I think we've learned that. Nothing is going to go easy no. here. No, nothing's going to go easy. And the the election is coming up here. And um, boy, I I don't think that comp- compounded by a coronavirus compounded with the economy is going to be easy either. But um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> man, what a great way to end a podcast, huh? Yeah. And an up note. <laughs> 
Well, you're working on um, your brewery. Is there anything else that you have going on right now that you wanted to plug before we say goodbye? Well, yeah, I guess I'd be remiss in that, you know, I'm still a musician and I still write and release music. So if you look me up, I would say, yeah, check out some of my tunes. Yeah, well, look, we'll, um, we'll link to your Spotify account. Where, where are you publishing your things? It's on Spotify, Apple Music, and, and SoundCloud. So I can send you some specific links if you want. But if you Google Michael Koppelman, you should find something. Awesome. We'll, we'll put those in the show notes, and we'll make sure we link to all of those. Awesome. Fun chat, man. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for spending your time with me. It's been really awesome talking to you. Likewise. My guest today was Michael D. Koppelman, and you can find them online at lowlife.com. That's L-O-L-I-F-E.com. And he's on all the social medias, so find him at lowlife. You've been listening to the 107 podcast. Find us online at 107.com slash podcast. And if you have a second, do send us a message. We love hearing from you. Our email address is podcast at 107.com. Until next time, this is Ivan Stegich. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.